Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Delighted to have you here. We've got an amazing episode coming up for you with Dr. Jocelyn Clark and Caitlin Thompson. Before we get to that conversation, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Thank you also to the Clinician Experience Project by Practicing Excellence for sponsoring this episode. The Clinician Experience Project provides coaching and development solutions for clinicians, leaders, and teams working in some of the nation's largest hospitals and healthcare systems. As a leading provider of clinician-designed content, the Clinician Experience Project team partners with clients to deploy skill-building programs that map directly to organizational goals, delivering measurable enterprise-wide results. To learn more about how your organization can improve patient and organizational outcomes, visit www.practicingexcellence.com. I'm so excited for you to check out this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Dr. Jocelyn Clark is the executive editor of The Lancet, and Caitlin Thompson is co-founder and publisher of Racket Magazine. They've both been on Explore the Space before in separate episodes, but having them both together was really incredible. We jumped into a really unique and just proper extraordinary discussion of the, the quest for equity and systemic change in medicine, in media, in publishing, and beyond in the pandemic, after the pandemic, just seeing the two of them rolling together and having a chance to listen in was really, really special. You're going to absolutely love this. Definitely subscribe to Explore the Space podcast wherever you like to download your podcast, and please do leave us that rating and a review as well. If you've been enjoying Ted Lasso as much as I have, definitely check out hashtag MedLasso and definitely check out MedLasso from Explore the Space podcast. All those links are in the show notes, and they're also in the archive as well. We'll have a new episode of Med Lasso to wrap up season two. The finale is tonight, and we're all super excited. You can email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show, and the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast is at www.explorethespaceshow.com. Definitely check it out, and please do share with your friends. That always really helps us out and is much appreciated. So all that said, let's get amongst it. Dr. Jocelyn Clark and Caitlin Thompson. Caitlin, welcome back to Explore the Space. I'm delighted you're here. Thank you so much for having me. And Jocelyn, you as well. Thank you for making the time and for cutting into what I'm sure is the the wonderful convivial UK happy hour. Yeah, well, absolutely. I'm delighted to be here and I couldn't be happier than, you know, raising a toast to both of you, two of my favorite podcasters. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> very much. Yeah. I, I agree. Caitlin, Caitlin is is serious. The the racket podcast, the last one, the debrief on the U.S. Open was as good as podcasting gets. Let's just start where we all want to start. Can we talk about the U.S. Open sure. just for a minute? Caitlin, you were there like we were watching on TV. It's it's fun on TV. You were actually there, particularly on the women's side. Was that the best U.S. Open of our lifetime? 
Quite possibly. I think if even taking away the tremendous, tremendous individual stories of the two finalists, an 18 year old and a 19 year old, a Canadian and a Brit, but between the two of them really speaking to, uh, first of all, everybody's heartstrings, but, you know, I think collectively maybe 10 different nations, just really embodying what the best to me tennis uh, of what it is, which is this international traveling circus of a sport, this idea that, you know, we can learn about and support and fall in love with and, and really see through, you know, a lot of different storylines and characters. And to me, the biggest, the biggest, especially on the women's side, but the biggest big narrative for me was how everybody was talking about why this U S open was going to be so boring because we were lacking so many bold face names. Everything we've ever done at racket was really to try to challenge this notion that the star ecosystem is the most important. I don't think it's important in culture. I don't think it's important in sports. And I think we've overemphasized how the entrenched power of celebrity is the only thing because we're incurious and inflexible that we can see as being important. And then all of a sudden that gets turned on its head because we have all of these amazing stories that anybody can appreciate and didn't fail to captivate from a tennis perspective and from a narrative perspective. Yes, the women, but also Carlos Alcaraz on the men's side, just this fresh faced idea that it doesn't have to be this hegemony of a few players that you've heard of and they're going to, you know, advertise products to you and they're going to be on all the billboards. And the idea is tennis is um, like many sports, more than one individual. It's, it's about the collective community. And what better example of that is than having all of these amazing stories that we didn't actually need all of the bold face names to provide. So for me, that was the best story. It was incredibly exciting. And being there was honestly a true privilege. And Justin, you were in the place where the the women's champion came from. You're where Emirata Kanu is from. Was it what was it like when she actually won the title? Were were people just beside themselves? Yeah, it was total it was total madness here. But I mean, I've got to correct both of you. I mean, this was a total <laughs> win for Canada on both sides, of course. Canada. Oh, okay. Layla 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 Fernandez, um, of course, who who, you know, gave a really fighting game toward Emma. It was a sensational final. But also Emma herself, as you know, uh, was born in Canada. So for those of us even on Layla's side in the women's final at least, um, we're also so proud that we were the birthplace of Emma and both of them have these incredible international, multicultural, incredible family background, breaking every mold, as you say, Caitlin, of what a tennis um, champion might be, was incredibly exciting. So yeah, total madness in Britain around Emma's ascent and the the newspapers the next morning were wall to wall with Emma coverage. I should tell you, it was really interesting for me. So the US Open from your side, you're both based in North America, you know, incredibly important tournament. And I agree with you that it was one of the best US Opens ever. But on this side of the pond in England, of course, Wimbledon. And this year I got to go to Wimbledon day six. And in fact, if you can believe it, I saw both Emma um, and uh, Medvedev play um, on court number one. I just like luck of the draw with my tickets. I got to see both of them. I'm with Caitlin. This was a sensational um, tournament, U.S. Open. But I think what it also showed us through that lens was they were stories of achievement and overcoming every assumption, every norm, every barrier that these individuals might have um, been faced with. And it shows the world that... Um, not just that it's a very rich tapestry, um, but that you can overcome. And I think it was just incredibly inspirational on all sides. 
Yeah. I, I like the way you frame that around inspiration and around this idea of overcoming barriers. Caitlin, this what you said about the star ecosystem too, and we sort of overlay that this really does bring us to why I wanted you both to come on the show. You are both experts in the world of publication, experts in the world of journalism, experts in the world of helping people to write in a way that expresses themselves and expresses a purpose. It feels like the way we do it and who gets to do it has been flipped on its head in a lot of ways by the the, the pandemic, if nothing else, and will continue to be flipped on its head by the variety of challenges that we face. And so as we as we try to grapple with this, the, there are some really good, I think, useful analogies. Jocelyn, the way that you frame that, right? The power in, in our diversity, the power in in finding different names and voices and, and, and figuring out how they get to express themselves and then celebrating it when it happens. The juxtaposition, though, is that in what I do and in our world of, of, of medicine and the life sciences, that's gone off a cliff because of the pandemic. And I think it's the data around the, the inequities that the COVID-19 pandemic has has raised specifically around women has really been destructive. Is there a way, given your role as someone who gets to pull a lot of strings on what gets out there and, and who gets out there, are there things that we can be doing? Are there broad strokes that we can pay attention to? that bring bring us closer to the tennis aspiration that we all just got to really enjoy and soak up? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting because I think in my work trying to, you know, be part of change around um, equity in medicine, particularly in terms of gender, I have found that the tennis world, and in particular um, during the during the COVID pandemic, where tennis for all of us kind of fans has become an incredible source of entertainment, of, you know, camaraderie, whether it's the Olympics or some of these these tennis tournaments that have been able to carry on despite the despite COVID has been a real it's for me, it's really let me think about the ways in which we can learn from inequities within sport into our own um, profession of medicine. And I think one of the things that we really see is the COVID pandemic has revealed an enormous number of inequities. But our role as journalists and publishers is to be able to disseminate and share those stories of inequities and, and, and hopefully be part of the change. I mean, one thing that has stayed quite constant, and I think we're, we're fortunate that we're in industries that have um, been stable and sustainable during a time when there have been a lot of economic uncertainty and a lot of job losses, is that we are continuing to put out our publications. And um, we've been able to utilize the labor of people who are really still fighting for this change. But for the first time, probably Mark, you might agree, in our careers, people are taking um, inequity seriously. For example, pre-pandemic, the idea that you might ask for flexible working arrangements was seen as being, you know, an accommodation for people who were perhaps not serious enough about their jobs or couldn't give 150% to their jobs. Now, all of a sudden, because it's an absolute requirement for the entire labor force, men and women, all of a sudden it's possible for us to do this. It is possible to do your job well, working in a more flexible environment, working different hours and that sort of thing. And so the COVID pandemic has been 
enormously challenging. It's been associated with a lot of loss. It's shown, and this is the link back to tennis, is the ways in which the playing field is so uneven. It's revealed the ways that that's happened, and therefore it's demanding that we look to ways to overcome that. Caitlin, does it feel insidious to you or is it transparent? The inequities that the pandemic has displayed, uh, they're industry agnostic, but obviously we get to talk about tennis and professional sports and, and medicine. Does it feel like it's insidious or does it just feel like this was always there and now we're paying attention to it? Yeah, I mean, I'm somebody who has never taken any of the constructs of our society as a default good. I've thought a lot about this. I think maybe part of it is just, you know, uh, the slight difference of being gay and sort of starting to say, well, marriage doesn't really make sense. Certainly pre gay marriage when I was growing up. So what else doesn't make sense? Does this make sense? Is this actually, you know, and it's, you can kind of keep going on pulling that, uh, thread from the sweater. If you're me, for a long time. And you should kind of come to the conclusion like, oh, this is all pretend. You know, none of this is actually um, necessary. You know, 500 years ago, we lived in an age of kings where sovereign rule by men was considered divine blood right. And so the fact that we've moved on from that in a short period of time means absolutely anything is mutable, anything is changeable. And if systems are in place, they're because they benefit people and people want them to be there. And so it's up to us to not only identify them, but also not treat them as immovable, but instead say, hey, listen, the tennis world in my particular, you know, corner of the universe, uh, adjusted, re- tore up its schedule, recreated bubbles, brought hundreds of the best players around the world and created conditions for them to play, entertain and continue on the sport, so it, largely for, for good great. What was stopping us from being this creative before? Oh, just the fact that we had this mindset and that things have always been this way and always been done this way. And I think, you know, trying to be the voice of change within larger publications now to take this into the the, the world of media. You know, when I worked at the Washington Post, when I worked at Time Magazine, when I worked in public television and public radio, you know, a lot of times I would find like-minded people who, who saw inequity, saw diversity, inclusion, and some of the other, you know, sort of like gender and, and uh, class issues with replicating power structures again and again and reinforcing them instead of challenging them. Um, but you know, those power structures were strong and and reinforced for a reason because there are people that benefited from them. And I felt for a long time, like, you know, sort of a salmon swimming upstream, even in the most sort of welcoming and, and theoretically self, you know, sort of introspective workplaces like public media, that was at times the most insidious because those are people who are, you know, convinced that they're the good kind of liberal and not actually really incentivized to, to understand criticism and, and, and move forward with it. So I'm kind of going a lot of different directions with this, but large, my large sort of viewpoint here is that in this space, what we tried to do when we started racket, the media company, which partially became racket, the magazine and racket, the podcast and racket, all these other different things was about who do we give the microphone to? Who do we empower? Who do we train if they don't have the training? Because we are convinced that their intelligence and their flexibility is enough to overcome the fact that maybe they're not a subject matter expert because their viewpoint and their energy was valuable to us. You know, so I think it's kind of a combination of that. I think it's this idea, first of all, the notion that like the worst reason I've heard for anything ever is that it's always been done this way or because it is. And the truth is that that can vanish in an instant. And if we haven't ever gone into a a situation thinking that, then the pandemic certainly should have taught us. But the second thing is these changes need, you know, they need, 
intention and they need execution. And you need to say, okay, this is where I'd like to get to. And this is how I'm going to tackle it. And it's going to be, you know, a fraught road, but I'm going to make the training available. I'm going to make outreach available. I'm going to make basically everything I can possibly do to redistribute that power because I'm not somebody who's threatened by its dismantling, but instead I'm going to help dismantle it because I don't believe that it's, you know, in a lot of cases there to help the majority of people, you know? So for me, it's all about the power structures and the idea that we can, you know, we can change anything we want to. And if we feel like we can't, then let's look at the people saying that and, and figure out how to, you know, get around them or, or, you know, change their minds. I think that's, that's quite right. But the status, there's two powerful forces. One, the status quo is incredibly powerful because as you say, it, you know, maintains the power and privilege of a certain group of individuals. So that's one challenge. And I think that's a challenge that we at the Lancet have been very happy to take up. But secondly, an incredible wave um, and movement that, you know, is variously called things like build back better that seeks to, you know, return to the old normal for which, you know, the architecture keeps those those people and those institutions um, in place. So I think the role of, of 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 magazines or journals within our respective spaces are are more important than ever. But I I don't think we would we would underestimate the powers that wish for those you know that hegemony to to continue. But at least you know the world is watching because COVID has proved that you know, it's by no means an equalizer. In fact, it's revealing deep inequities that disadvantage a massive, you know, portion of our population. It yeah. feels like how we respond to this is is really in large part, we're all kind of in the primes of our careers and doing lots of different things. And it feels like this next stretch as we move through this phase of the pandemic and what comes next and how we respond to it with the challenges that you both have laid out is really going to define our careers and our legacies. It's not what we've been doing. It's what's to come because this has been such a momentous time for all of us. So I, I, I want you both and I'll ask you first, Jocelyn, what excites you about that opportunity? Because it's it's. It, it feels like, right, the rocks have all been flipped. We can see what's underneath. We can see what we want to cast aside. We can see what we want to amplify and build, but we can't put the rocks back, right? They're too heavy. They've been moved. It's exposed and the light of day is on it. What excites you about that, Jocelyn, first? And then, Caitlin, I want you to kind of answer it from the other direction of where do you maybe feel that sense of fear or concern? But, Jocelyn, you get to take the aspiration piece. <laughs> Huh. Well, it's interesting. I don't know if I feel as optimistic as as that question suggests. I mean, firstly, this is a global pandemic where, you know, Mark, you're sat in California. Caitlin, you're in New York. I'm in London. We're, you know, enormously privileged. We've probably all had access to vaccine and, and not far from now, we'll potentially be offered booster shots while, you know, less than 1% of people in low, middle and income countries have had access to these life-saving um, treatments. So, you know, that makes me worry. And those are the sorts of things that both keep me up at night and make me think that my job as an editor at a major medical journal is going to, you know, consume me for quite some time to come. I also do worry a great deal about how we'll possibly 
overcome some of the losses that have been experienced. So let's just talk about those professionals that you raised a, a couple minutes ago, Mark, that, that you and I work with in medicine and science, where over the course of the pandemic, which, you know, ground to a halt, you know, a normal way of doing business within medicine and science, but, you know, really disproportionately affected women, women of color, other marginalized groups. And that because that meant, you know, more caregiving responsibilities on the shoulders of women, which were who are already, you know, taking the bulk of the domestic um, responsibilities within most families, people getting sick, people doing, you know, essential work in clinic or in service roles that you know, thankfully, most of the world has woken up to are incredibly valuable to our societies. But it has meant for the kind of main um, metrics, if you will, of productivity and output and success in our worlds, like publications, like grants, that those also ground to a halt. And how, how do we overcome that in terms of protecting these women's careers and allowing them to re-enter in a way that keeps them competitive? It won't have escaped your notice because both of you are avid social media users that at the same time that women are largely being burdened with these responsibilities and suffering these kind of professional losses, that there's a whole lot of other people, mostly men, who have been able to utilize the time during, you know, remote working or lockdowns and that sort of thing to be, you know, writing op-eds every single week or, you know, contributing to the debates and discourse around how we get ourselves out of this pandemic and, you know, accumulating an enormous amount of gain associated with the pandemic. I really, really worry about that. Um, I don't know that institutions like universities and funders are thinking about that um, sufficiently. But for me, my main concern um, as someone who works in global health is largely vaccine um, equity and there doesn't seem to be any meaningful movement on that. You know, this past week, your vice president or your president, Joe Biden, excuse me, held a summit. We've got, you know, the G20 coming up. I'm not seeing, you know, the kind of movement we want to see on that that would create a more equal world when it comes to access to, you know, essentially the only tool we have right now to get ourselves out of this pandemic. Caitlin, do you see that same feeling when you interact with people in the international multi-billion dollar worlds of professional sports and professional oh, tennis. That, that's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Jocelyn could not have made better points and I won't add much by, uh, you know, embellishing them, you know, inequities have always existed. And this is in every sense of that word, racially, geographically, economically, certainly gender wise has been exacerbated, you know, and I can only imagine why a pretty, you know, concerned viewpoint sitting in the nexus of medicine and communications is, is kind of the only logical response to seeing what we're doing here um, and how we're failing and how we've been failing and how this represents, you know, pretty much a, a series of individual failures on the part of nations, communities, and then, you know, international bodies that are, failing to show how they can or, or should be, you know, coalescing around solutions, vaccine equity being one of them, climate change. I mean, you know, this, we're going to not face fewer problems going forward and our inability to work together and to even get on the same page politically and financially about what, how to get there is, is, you know, yeah, we're worrisome for sure. 
Um, you know, my viewpoint on it is perhaps one of like sort of radical politicization, which is maybe not super helpful to the discourse, but it's, you know, again, I, having grown up in Canada with a single payer healthcare system with its flaws, certainly as did you, Jocelyn, um, and coming to the States where healthcare is for profit and therefore in, you know, baseline inhumane, um, elevating the, you know, and I, by, by no means am I criticizing any single healthcare provider, doctor, nurse, RN, just the system itself is for profit. It is not for communities. And so those things are in open conflict. I don't know what better opportunity we have to completely nuke the entire system and say, Hey, listen, how has Finland, how has New Zealand, how has Canada, you know, for better or for worse, mobilized? And what are ways that we need to act radically tomorrow? You know, the one thing that is tied to all of this, and again, it's not necessarily a healthcare issue, but the one thing that's tied to it is, you know, the fact that rampant inequality financially has, has, again, created opportunities, as you say, in the micro space for, you know, men in particular, the already privileged people to be able to have more opportunities, more voice, more platforms, more access to microphones at the expense of everyone else. What if we were to say, okay, you know what? We can't get rich people to pay their taxes. We really need that income. They're hiding it in offshore accounts. You know what? We're just going to take 100% inheritance tax. Sorry, guys. We're going to call it Project Clean Slate. You don't get to start with billions of dollars. No human being should have a B next to the the number in their bank account. We're just going to, as a society, collectively decide that having billionaires is a failure, not a celebration, right? And you know, I'm not saying that those are very easy, um, you know, political uh, places to get to, but I think what we've seen, especially among people who are moderate, people who are thoughtful, people who want to seek compromise, that we've been, especially in this country, although it's you know it's not a problem unique to the states. We've been having a reasonable dialogue with a lot of people who don't want to remotely be reasonable. Um, and I think the solution then is to go in the opposite direction and say, okay, listen, we've had an opportunity to collectively decide what's good for the, the health of our society, the access to healthcare, to housing, to basic needs, and we've blown it. So instead of continually electing folks who are going to kind of try to reach across the aisle and be compromisers, what if we were to essentially, you know, dismantle systems, right? Like we have a situation with the Supreme Court right now, you know, that is represents a non-representative body appointed to lifetime seats, right? And again, I'm sort of jumping around, but I'm using these comparisons to sort of illustrate what if you remake the court? What if you re- reintroduce the filibuster? I'm sounding like the old political reporter I used to be because again, this sort of stuff for me systemically is where you tackle it. You don't tackle it in terms of, you know, trying to push people gently on one hand or try to like find some incremental steps, you know, where we are as a nation, as a society, as a, as a, as a global community facing the kind of issues we're facing that the pandemic, again, to your point, exacerbated, pointed out, but didn't create is going to require radically different, um, you know, marching orders. And I think we have never had a better opportunity, which doesn't make me optimistic that we're going to do it, but we've never had a better opportunity to dismantle some of this stuff. And unless we look at that, like, okay, let's put some crazy ideas on the table. We're going to take all your money. You can't spend it during your lifetime. So it's going to come back to the government. Guess what? It's going to pay for everyone to get healthcare. And guess what? You don't get to do anything if you're not vaccinated. It doesn't address the fact that people in Sri Lanka aren't getting vaccines, but it's a start, right? So for me, it's more about like, I would totally, crazy. I would totally be voting for you, Caitlin. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not your name on a ballot. Well, Jocelyn was, is unfortunately a dictatorship, so I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, I'm not. <laughs> so drunk in power. You're a, 
<laughs> you're my, I can't you're wait my for you to at least be the commissioner of professional tennis, Caitlin. Someday you'll well, be the professional of a professional tennis entity and we'll go from a, there. Uh, let's start. It'll be a brief and terrifying reign, but it will be effective. <laughs> no, no listen, just, you know, radical, listen, there, there is, I mean, it is interesting to explore the unexploited um, opportunity for all of that kind of social activism, Caitlin, among professional athletes. I mean, tennis is such an interesting game. I'm a, I'm a fan like you guys are. I've learned a hell of a lot this year during the pandemic because I've been watching so much tennis and I've been starting to notice those storylines and those narratives that you raised and also your journalism has raised, which I think is so incredibly needed and so, so educative. However, Tennis is often seen as a kind of more equal or more equitable kind of sport. But at the same time, you've got a lot of players who have huge followings, huge influence, who do virtually nothing. Let's talk about our favorite, you know, Swiss male tennis player. And I just wonder if there's something in that for professional athletes to be doing more. Look at what Naomi Osaka did in revealing her challenges around her mental health it's like immediately creates a conversation i'm not saying it was all positive but it was pretty awesome what that generated yeah yeah for sure i i don't disagree with you i think roger federer to me has been probably the greatest disappointment um between what's actually uh coming to prove to be his company's involvement in the domestic violence uh sort of I want to say the, the the lack of action, you know, what's been going on with Alexander Zverev, who's had credible accusations of domestic violence made against him, published in part by us, but also other credible organizations, confirmed by a Labor Cup employee who spoke to us off the record and who was vetted legally, you know, and then Roger Federer owns the event that this happened at. And he owns the management company that was managing Zverev that actually still might be managing Zverev. I'm not sure that they've actually ever officially parted ways. I don't think that guy gets a Rolex sponsorship on his own to be totally candid with his dad managing him. But what do I know? So I think you're right. There are this generational shift happening where, you know, Greta Thunberg and Osaka and for better or for worse, Nick Kyrgios are willing to say, hey, here's where I stand on mental health. Here's where I stand on climate. In Nick's case, here's where I stand on vaccination and traveling and quarantine and being responsible calling out his fellow fellow players who are being irresponsible. I think what's an amazing opportunity and where the future of athletes and the future of celebrity lie is not in being bland and corporate endorsed, but rather leading your corporate sponsors to better um, and more authentic engagements where you put your beliefs and you don't sign on with a company and you don't agree to re- represent them unless they're doing something to address the world's issues that you feel particularly motivated by. This is something the younger kids didn't need to be taught. They just started doing it because yeah. I think they felt held to a standard among their peers that authenticity was going to be the chief currency. And it didn't really matter if you had a bunch of cool brands next to your name, if you weren't doing something um, that was impactful, that felt true. And I think that's a giant, massive shift from the days of Serena Williams, who love her as do many, but never voted very famously apolitical you know, and then look at her compared to her sister who advocated for equal pay and was a vocal and constant warrior for getting women uh, on the on an equal playing field. So I think we've certainly had examples going backwards in this sport, Billie Jean, Martina, you know, I could go on and on. But for me, the real interesting stuff is the generational value system that is now culturally expected. And that to me is actually where you see the shift. Roger Federer has never 
has nothing to gain and only everything to lose if he started being authentic now. He's become our avatar for class and dignity. He looks like James Bond, according to some. And, you know, he sells us latte machines and, you know, fancy Swiss chocolates and terribly ugly shoes that absolutely nobody should be wearing. <laughs> what the expectation we should have of him now is that as a leader of the sport, as somebody whose voice transcends, he could and should be doing something to protect those beautiful Swiss mountains. What, what about climate change, Roger? Where do you stand on that? Who's going to ask him that in the media room? Who's his agent, Tony Godzik, going to allow to him? And then, you know what? If he continues to give us kind of bad answers, like he did with, when asked about this Zverev stuff, let's move on and let's let's not decide he's 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 not the greatest ever if he can't be a great human to me. And so, to me, that's a very emerging but massively important shift, I think, in cultural values that we've started to see people questioning the, you know, the. sometimes to a, to a point, but you know, you see occasionally like these, these, um, emerging sort of pop stars and they say, wait, wasn't this person's dad like in the, um, you know, Academy of the Americas that trained, you know, terrorists in the, you know, in, in Guantanamo Bay and this kind of thing. I'm sort of getting my facts mixed up, but we're starting to ask deeper questions and we're starting to probe a little bit more about inherited wealth, about inherited privilege, about inherited ideas. And maybe that's, an overcorrection, but it certainly comes from this area where we didn't ask any questions at all. And I think for me, that net is quite positive. And I think you're right, Jocelyn, there could and should, and now are models for these athletes to be doing better tennis or otherwise. And I hope that they take the opportunity to do so. So Mark, I think two, I think two of her three things are maybe present in our field. I'd be really interested to hear what you think. I'll tell you what my two are. The one is a generational shift. I mean, Next gen doctors, healthcare providers, and scientists care about vastly different things than the older generation. They care about flexibility in their careers. They care about social change, particularly climate. And they care about equity and diversity in a really, really authentic way. So that really resonates for me. The second, which I just like, was just like making my head want to explode while you were talking is that all of the examples of sort of shape shifter change makers within your community, Caitlin, almost every one of them comes from a community that has been um, systematically disadvantaged by the current system. Sure. And this is so true. I mean, this is probably true more broadly, culturally and politically, but that really, really resonates with me, Mark. I would be so interested to hear your take on this. That part of the fight that we're in is that it's, you know, it's just a constant need to try to dismantle the status quo, but it's entirely done by the folks who are disadvantaged and those who do hold the most power to actually create change do largely nothing to um, challenge, let alone dismantle those structures. I mean, every example you gave. The one thing that I don't think that we do well enough in medicine and science, um, you know, we're getting better at looking at the intersectionalities between gender, race, and ethnicity, for sure. And a lot of us are becoming more and more globally minded when we talk about health challenges and collective responses to health challenges. But it's this issue of class that you bring up where the questions of, you know, challenging one's social and class position, and which may include inherited wealth, is something that we don't really touch. In, in my view, Mark, what do you think coming from the U.S.? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to reflect on all of those things. I mean, for me personally, 
the issue of how have physicians and scientists managed this and that how has that sort of inheritance been handled? I'm a third generation physician. My grandfather went as a physician to fight the Nazis and he fought in North Africa as a doctor. My dad and my mom left South Africa to come to the United States because they didn't want their kids to be raised in an apartheid country. And they've lived their lives in such a fashion to help my sister and I be good people, good Americans, uh, you know, part of a, of, of a wide heterogeneous tapestry. And my dad's professional career was really rich with that. But neither my grandfather nor my dad, I think, were equipped with even the mindset to understand how to talk about it and how to influence people around them to understand that that's the right way to do the work of a healer, that sometimes you have to fight and sometimes you embrace everyone that's around you. My grandfather never, ever talked about what it was like serving as a physician in North Africa in 1942, ever, to anybody. My dad, I think, is still really learning in his retirement to share what he saw over the course of an expansive and amazing career. I I practice where my dad practiced now. I meet his patients like every day. And it is so fun. They tell me stories from 2008. Oh, yeah, your dad did this and that. I think for people who did it, did that work to understand how to articulate it is critically important because that legacy is there. We're not starting from zero, but we need those voices to show this has actually been normalized work in American healthcare for a long, long time. Um, it just was never part of the discourse. It wasn't how medicine was represented in media. It wasn't how medicine was written about, but it, it's been there. I think, though, to the point that you both made around people speaking about where the where the inequities are, where the power balance, where the power balance has been pushed in a certain direction and people not speaking about it is critically important. The place that I really like to speak about and I have come to learn from really smart people the extent of the privilege that I have as a white male physician in the United States, um, I can get away with so much and that I am imbued with the ability to do so much for the right, but it's there just by virtue of who I am and not necessarily my skill level, though I like to think I'm a competent doctor and a good leader. The biggest one, though, is if we just look at microcosm at promotions and tenure in academic medicine in the United States. It was built generations ago by people who look and sound like me to promote people who look and sound like me. If I'd stayed in academics, I'd be a professor by now. And it wouldn't be because I was great. Um, I'm not a good researcher. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm good at what I do now. Um, but I'd be a professor. I'm convinced of that. And you'd have a hard time convincing me otherwise. That is a place that I think we can start where... Caitlin, I think you laid it out so well saying these structures don't work. It doesn't mean we're bound to them forever. We get to have the sense of empowerment that we can change them. If we can revamp promotion and tenure in academic medicine and in academics in the United States as a whole, it's a huge step forward because right now it's a grotesquerie. It's so biased. It's so unfair. It's so slow. And there's so much at stake. That's the sort of thing that, where there is a place to start, but it's normalizing that mindset to go out and do the work. That's got to start so early though, Mark. I mean, like yeah. the, the idea that all of this is socially constructed is like, it's indisputable. And yet in medical school, it's taught. No one talks about it. Yeah, no, any yeah, yeah. In, incursion of, you know, social theory or, yeah. or political theory is not objective and therefore not credible. So this has to start very, very um, early with people understanding that 
that even, you know, the notion of a meritocracy, for goodness sake, which we know does not exist and yet (laughs) has propped up, you know, the confidence, the careers and the hubris of most of our senior leaders, all of which, um, with all respect, Mark, you're absolutely right. Look and sound a lot like you. The, the idea that all of this is is changeable and that we can question it and that an alternative is available and very likely it would be better for all of us is not something that's embedded in people's minds from a young age. I mean, it's, it's Caitlin, uh, the worlds of medicine, medicine in particular, I'm not putting science more generally in this category because medicine itself is just such an incredibly conservative profession and conservative mindset compared to other sectors or industries. And it's reflected in all of these metrics. And it's, and it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, you know, more than 50% of medical students and science undergrads are women, like fairly consistently across the entire world. And yet by the time they get to sort of my level, which is mid-career, the attrition, like the dropping out of these incredibly talented, creative individuals with hopes and dreams and so much to offer is about half of that. And then it just gets, you know, just gets worse as you get older. In Canada, for example, in the 13 medical schools across the country, there's only two female deans. Um, I mean, and this is, you know, this this says two things. I mean, this is I just described it as heartbreaking because it it's it's just so um, absurdly unjust that we're not utilizing their productivity and creativity. But it also, of course, if we're honest, shows that we're there is no meritocracy. It's actually a mediocrity because we're drawing from farther down the tail of the available pool of talent if we're promoting folks who actually, you know, if we're honest, don't deserve to be there. Yeah, medicine and and media could not be more different in this way. You know, media is not a meritocracy either, but, you know, the, the constraints, the licensing, the endorsement of who can practice media has almost no relation to accreditation, gatekeeping, you know, and more than ever has been open ended. So that's not to say we haven't replicated some pretty terrible power structures, but we don't have that same group of hurdles. So yeah, it really is kind of apples to oranges. I wanted to ask you, tennis has more turnover in its ranks. Professional tennis players' lifespan and their time in the limelight is relatively short. And I'll say that just in comparison to the arc of the career of a physician or physician leader. Is it good to have that sort of turnover or is it better to have the same voices lasting for a long time? If you're looking to make expansive change amongst the structures of the entity in which they do their work. So to restate it, we have a lot of longevity in, in medicine and in medical leaders. In a professional sports environment, the people who are doing the similar work, they turn over a lot faster just because their careers are shorter for whatever reason. They Other people come up and pass them. They get hurt. They move on to something else. Do you think it's good to have that churn? Is it good to have that turnover? Or is it better to have some stability at the top? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, when I was a political journalist, we used to ask the same thing about term limits in, in office. So on one hand, it was uh, yeah, like, yeah. you know, do you want the same old dusty men mostly who've been in Congress forever? On the other hand, if nobody knows how it works and the rules aren't, you know, at least part of the process, uh, assuming those rules aren't imbued with, in, you know, injustice and preferences and privilege, which we know they are, um, you know, then, then maybe it's a good thing to have experience. 
you know, and, and I'm really of two minds about this because the truth is the tennis world, you know, what you're talking about is a really small part of the tennis world, right? The tennis world is more than it's two professional tours and body of tournaments. It's, you know, it's governing bodies, it's recreational, it's NCAA, it's college tennis. Like I played, it's junior tennis, it's tennis in high schools and, 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 you know, the little peewee tennis that my kid is playing in his after school program this afternoon. So as a professional context, yes, it is a relatively short time frame. You know, you don't, you don't spend eight years in school and then get to play tennis. You usually spend eight years, you know, growing up and then get thrust into junior tournaments. And if you're lucky, you know, you've established yourself on the professional side of things as a teenager. On one hand, that's great because it keeps challenging the notion of who gets to be there. And as we've made, you know, real interesting strides in terms of, in a good way, equity and access and shown that not only, you know, you don't have to come from a country club to be able to succeed at the sport the way that you could before there was real money in it back in the 40s and 50s before the open era. Yeah, you tended to have you know, more of the folks who, who looked and act the same, who could frankly afford to kind of be professional dilettantes. Now you have professional athletes who come from literally every corner of the world. Billie Jean King would answer this question by saying, you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And not any, not enough people on the, on the tour, certainly leadership, but also players understand how important it is to be an activist, understand how important it is to defend the gains you've made and continue building on the gains we've made. Otherwise you backslide real fast. And this was essentially her, you know, every time I've spoken to her, interviewed her or interacted with her, she's really, really keen to communicate this idea that like the first generation of the pioneers, the second generation of the the beneficiaries. And by the third generation, everyone's taking it for granted and assuming that they can just kind of do their own thing because the system is, is solid. And just as I was saying in a sort of hopefully inspiring way that none of these systems are solid. And so we should feel free to kick them and kick the tires and see if they work. The gains are, are not necessarily, you know, permanent either. You know, I think you could look at the reproductive right backslide that we've had in this country in the last, you know, month to sort of indicate nothing should be taken for granted, both good and bad. And if you're not moving forward, then you're moving backward. And I think, you know, part of what I see a very healthy sport ecosystem as being is allowing voices like Billie Jean King's and people who have had accumulated knowledge and understanding, but are not personally standing to gain from their perpetuation, be involved in shaping and educating and listening to the next generation of people. I think that um, as much as I can glean from being very, very outside of the world of medicine, which seems rigid, conservative, and highly structured, and the point, you know, the media conversation with which we're all involved in, which is very, very amorphous, and tennis, which is even more disorganized, you know, it seems like the standard recipe of having the the people who are not personally going to gain, but who have mentorship and a willingness to engage in dialogue with the younger generation to constantly be iterating and evolving what this, the power structures look like is kind of the closest thing you can get to great. Because the truth is, even if you were codified in stone, all of these great gains in any field that people feel like they make in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, all this stuff, um, the truth is they can they can disappear in an instant if the next if the people coming in behind them don't continue to see the need. To, to continue push forward. So uh, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic, but I, again, I, I tend to look at it through power structures because that's, I think, the most useful, for me anyway, sort of powered paradigm to be able to sort of say, how are we challenging or, or, or defending what exists and how are we open to changing it to make it better? And if we're not asking both those questions, I think we're not really engaging in the, the real work. Jocelyn, for you as someone who is in a place 
nearing approaching or even at sort of the apex within our profession with that mindset and acknowledging that boy does medicine need that mindset of you know we must continue to move forward what are things to you that feel right acknowledging you said this is stuff that keeps you up at night you've had a sleepless night you're at the desk you get to start making some important editorial decisions and really be in the room and move things what are the things for you what's the low-hanging fruit for you today tomorrow next week next year that feels imperative um, I mean, I think one one thing that we've done very well, and but again, has to be worked on and pushed on every single day is trying to surface new voices and providing them a platform. I mean, editorially, on the research side, there's very little, we have very little control over what comes in. And we're, a, you know, a massive journal that receives, you know, just an overabundance of, of material of research, you know, far more than we can possibly publish. So on that side of things, we can't be that proactive. But on the commissioning side of things, which is the more journalistic side of the work that I do, we have enormous scope. And it is incredibly exciting. Um, one of the best parts of my job to try to go out there and find those new voices. And, you know, in the same way that, that, that Caitlin gets to enjoy putting together more of a magazine. And I'm, I'm, as we're talking, looking to the, um, the latest copy of racket that I managed to find in a London bookstore, uh, yesterday, shout out to Meg culture and Clarkenwell, which had uh, one final copy of the Naomi Osaka edited uh, special issue of racket. Um, just this enormous scope um, of influence we can have as editors when it comes to commissioning. We have done that so well, and it's been incredibly gratifying and it absolutely shifts the conversation. It, it just utterly changes the goalposts because um, the tendency traditionally for medical journals has been to, you know, kind of be receptive to pitches, who, which always come from, you know, the kind of usual suspects or to go to the same usual suspects because they're tried, because they're tested um, and because uh, they're trusted to go to the same people to write for us. So we have just completely tried to shift our um, editorial and commissioning strategies so that we're going out there to surface issues of importance to our field that are largely neglected, which includes sexism and misogyny, ra structural racism, and, you know, the responsibilities of institutions to change, not of individuals to change, that these are systems issues and they demand both leadership, investment and new ways of doing business. That is really, really exciting. And it's one of the only things that, you know, day in and day out makes me feel like, you know, we're really we're really making a contribution because in a lot of ways, journals can't diversify, can't be as equitable, diverse and inclusive as we want to be if universities and other academic institutions don't address the bias in their systems. Because we know from lots of evidence that um, it isn't an even playing field for women and, and people of color and, and other groups, that if those people aren't able to you know, fulfill all their dreams and ascend to the top of their careers, they're not going to be available. Um, and they're not going to be leading the research and receiving the grants and, and doing the work that finds its way into, into publication. So we both, you know, doing what we can to try to um, advance their careers, but also 
spend a lot of time campaigning and critiquing other systems within our ecosystem that need to change. And where do people find you? Where do they find the Lancet? How can they sort of access and support the strategic vision that you lay out, but also then read, enjoy, learn from and disseminate the incredible stuff that you're putting out? The one-stop shop is Lancet.com, but you can also go to our page, Lancet.com slash diversity to find our diversity pledge, our anti-racism pledge, and a link to our hub of content that, you know, raises really critical questions around these issues, but also um, very soon, probably by the time this podcast is released, we'll have issued a new call for papers. We're doing a special theme issue on racism and health. That's wonderful. May I call it another component of the Lancet of the Lancet universe that I also really enjoy and is very meaningful for me? Of course. Lancet Countdown. Yeah. Your, yeah, yeah. your exploration of climate change and human health uh, is it's it's must read material. And uh, I'm so glad that the Lancet has gotten so far out in front. We'll have links to all of that good stuff in our show notes. Caitlin, for you, Driving Racket Magazine, which the the, the splash that it's made, like entering the the crowded world of sports media it, it for me at least and i'm super biased because i love it seems really great i mean you're it's in london and and jocelyn can go and grab one off of the shelves is it what you want where do you want it to be and obviously how do people find racket to as we continue to kind of do all of this work together yeah i mean it's just struck me today as we've been talking you know you guys have in the medical world so much more of an of a difficult push, frankly, because not that, you know, the world of sports is not male dominated by traditional powers that be, but you know, the truth is like, if you can play well enough, great. If people read your stuff, you're great. And you know, there really isn't this, this sort of, you know, the hoops need to be much more considered. I think if, if you're in your position, because you know, the truth is having started racket six years ago, publishing this magazine starting five years ago, and now being this more than a magazine, but a media company doing digital content and podcasts and events and activations and some work with brands, the entirety has, has been built around this mission of making tennis more inclusive, making it look and feel and sound a lot closer to the game that, you know, my partner, David, and our community grew up on the public courts than it, than it ever, um, you know, got to communicate it to, to the larger world. So I think, you know, for us, we're going to continue putting one foot in front of the other. And my challenges are very different from yours, which is you're working with an established power structure to change and to push. And I've done that and I don't envy you. I'm doing it from the outside, which is building basically a big enough moat around us that it, so that I can be even more brutally honest and lead by example, creating the kinds of things that I want everybody to be creating, which is thoughtful coverage that's diverse, that comes up with ideas that would never even occur to me because a healthy ecosystem means one that's reflective of tons and tons of different viewpoints, not just mine. Um, So I don't want the tennis world to look like me. I want the tennis world to look like all the different people who partake in it, whether that's professionals, storytellers, umpires, you know, governing bodies, et cetera. So, you know, I am really conscious that the way I get there and the way you guys get there is different because we're dealing with different block and tackle sort of day-to-day challenges. You know, the stuff that you guys are describing is challenging. I find really easy. We're making new sports journalists because you're right. They don't get pumped out by traditional places, but we don't need them to. You guys do, you know, you, and, and so the challenge for me is a little bit different. Having enough credibility, having enough size and basically being able to sort of take on some of this entrenched power structure is where my battle resides. 
And, you know, if anybody doubts that I'm up for it, you can probably hear the tone of my voice. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm the point of the spirit. Like, let's go. So it, it's a real privilege to get to talk to you both and, uh, you know, understand how our various journeys are all leading to hopefully the same place. And as always, you can find all of our stuff at rocketmag.com. That's fantastic. This was a real treat. And and I love that we get to do this. I love that I get to learn from people like you and, and be connected with both of you. This was incredibly special. We'll have links to all of this stuff in the show notes as well. Jocelyn, thank you so much for making time. Enjoy the rest of, of happy hour. Enjoy Emirata Khanu's victory. And we will definitely do this again soon. Thank, thank you, you so much. Great to talk to both of you. Caitlin, thank you. This was a total treat. My, same for me. Until next time. My thanks once again to Caitlin and Jocelyn for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Hope you enjoyed listening to them. This was an amazing opportunity to speak with them. They're absolutely brilliant. Thank you also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's executive MBA and executive fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Thank you also to the Clinician Experience Project by Practicing Excellence for sponsoring this episode. The Clinician Experience Project provides enterprise-wide healthcare coaching and development solutions for clinicians, leaders, and teams to improve patient connection, team collaboration, and leadership effectiveness. Organizations see significant results when participants spend a mere five minutes per week building skills through app-delivered programs. To learn more, visit www.practicingexcellence.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show. You can find me on Instagram at Explore the Space Show. You can email me anytime, Mark at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. You can find the whole archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.ExploreTheSpaceShow.com. We'll be back soon with more great content, including our wrap-up of Ted Lasso Season 2's the season finale episode. Med Lasso will be back this coming Monday. Definitely check it out. Check out the whole archive of Explore the Space and Med Lasso at the website. Get amongst it. Until then, take care. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.